If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them, turn with me once again to the book of Acts and to chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we are going to continue our series through this great book that we've been studying through now uh, for, for a number of months. And, and as we do, we come to a very long passage, one that sort of, a, it sort of brings to a close the, the first part of the book of Acts, and it also opens up to us the, the next part. So there's, there's individual sort of sections within the, the entire book of Acts, and so we come to the close of the first one, and we're being introduced to the second one. And we're going to pick back up with the story of a man named Stephen, who we were first introduced to when we looked at the first part of chapter 6 a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he was one of the seven men who were chosen uh, to come alongside the apostles in the church to begin serving the church family as a whole. And we read about him briefly uh, back in, in, in chapter 6, verse 5. We read about Stephen and said that, that Luke tells us that he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but then in the following extended section, Luke begins to tell us more about Stephen. He, he informs us about who Stephen was, and he, he lets us get into an understanding about the ministry that Stephen was called to. And that's what I want us to look at today. So it's a long passage. I'm going to read it all to you because you know as well as I do, we are committed here to the understanding of God's Word. And to understand God's Word, we need to read God's Word. And so we're going to hold a place of, of, of authority for the Word of God to be read publicly. And so I'm going to read the entire section to you this morning. We're going to begin in verse 8 of Acts chapter 6. Hear the Word of God. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Then the high priest said, are these things so? And he said, brethren and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to the land which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, that they would bring them into bondage and, and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. 
Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac the circumcised, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our father found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. But when the time of promise drew near, when God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. And at this time, Moses was born, and he was well-pleasing to God, and he was, he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was opposed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them, and they were fighting and, and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? He who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And he drew near to observe the voice of the Lord coming to him. And the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who, you, who made you a ruler and judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from, a, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. 
And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of to the, the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephim, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land promised by the, possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for God, for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Are they killed? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And He, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this day in which we are able to gather as free people in this wonderful country that you've blessed us with. We're able to gather here and we're able to 
open up the very word that you have given to us, that you have authored, your inspired, inerrant word we have in front of us. And you've given us the freedom to be able to open it up and to hear it read and to study it for ourselves. So we thank you for that blessing. We thank you because we know that that is not a blessing that is shared by all of our brothers and sisters across the world. There are many who are persecuted today for this very reason. They're not allowed to even have copies of scriptures in their hands apart from persecution. So, Father, as we celebrate our independence and freedom, we are mindful of those others, brothers and sisters in Christ, who do not share that with us. And we lift them up to you, and we pray for an, a special measure of your grace to rest upon them. We, we're thankful that we're united to them by the blood of Christ. And through our faith in the Lord Jesus, we recognize that we have more in common with them than many that we share our lives with here. And yet, Lord, we lift them up to you, and we pray for them. We pray that you would help them to hold strong in the face of the persecution in which they are undergoing. I pray for us here in America that we too as Christians would name the name of Christ boldly and that we would stand for that which is right and that we would call upon our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to do wonderful works in our lives and in our country. And I pray that we would be found faithful to that. As we study your word today, I pray that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to understand that which you would have us to see from this text. There's so much that is here. Help us, Father, to concentrate on that which you have laid before us this morning. Change our hearts by it. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. So as you can imagine from a text this size, um, there's a lot of material to cover. Uh, I, I read that one preacher preached over 80 sermons from the passage that I just read for you. I'm going to try to do it in one. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not going to be able to cover much more than just the high spots uh, in the time that I have today. And, and, and in doing so, let me just say to you, my primary goal is simply to help us understand how Stephen emulated Jesus in his character and in his ministry and even in his death. And then I want us to think, what then does that mean for us? That just kind of gives you the, the, the landscape toward where we're going. How did, how did Stephen emulate Jesus in his character, in his ministry, and in his death? And what does that mean for you and for me? I want to begin by looking at Stephen the man. In fact, that's the first little hook that I've given you on your outline this morning just to kind of help us figure out the flow of the text and where we want to hang our thoughts on. Stephen the man is what I want us to consider to begin with. And Luke tells us a number of things about Stephen the man that are noteworthy. We, we, we know from the criteria that was given to the apostles that, that back in verse 3, that Stephen was a man of good reputation. He was a man full of the Holy Spirit, and he was a man full of wisdom. All of that we learned in our last study. We're also told in verse 5 that he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And again in verse 8, we read that he was full of faith and power. And then according to verse 10, we read that when he spoke, he spoke with wisdom. Now, that kind of description about Stephen might make us jump to the conclusion that he was some sort of superman, that he was, he was some sort of extraordinary person with unique abilities and, and unique empowerment. And, and certainly, 
Stephen was a man who was uniquely blessed by God and placed at a certain point in the church's history to accomplish great things for God. Nevertheless, I think that if we place Stephen on too lofty of a platform, we will miss something important. You see, while we cannot forget that that Stephen was a man filled with the gifts from God, he was nevertheless a sinner. He was a man just like the rest of us. He was a man who who was fallen and, and broken, and he was in need of a Savior, just like we are in need of a Savior. That's a description of all of us. We are all sinners who must come to God empty-handed and begging him for his mercy and for his grace. That's how Stephen had come to God. And once he did, he, he was presented with the gospel message of what Jesus Christ had done for him. Stephen, Stephen believed in Jesus. He placed his faith in Christ And as a result, he was empowered to live a life that reflected the life that Christ had lived in front of him. In fact, notice the similarities between the descriptions that I've already pointed out about Stephen here in chapter 6 and what Luke tells us and what we know about the life of Christ. According to Luke chapter 4 verse 1, Jesus was also full of the Spirit. And according to Luke chapter 2 verse 52, he's described there, as being full of wisdom. And throughout his gospel, Luke tells us that that Jesus did wonder-working power, just as we sang about earlier. Jesus did wonderful things, and, and, and he had a heart of service. So based upon what we read about Stephen here in Acts, we realize that having become a believer in Christ, The Spirit of God had filled Stephen and done a work of transforming him into the very image of Jesus, the one in whom he had placed his faith. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that is the ultimate, should be the ultimate desire of every believer who comes to Jesus. We come to him empty-handed, clinging to his grace and only his grace and mercy in our life. And as a result... We want his life to be emulated in ours. We want what he and how he lives to become so impacted into the way that we live that when others see us, they see Jesus. If you've truly been saved and you've been delivered from death by his death on the cross, then your prayer should be that you become more and more like Jesus every day, that your character would reflect his character. But I want you to notice that when that happens, when that happens, things will not always go smoothly and without incident for you. In fact, when your life reflects the character of Christ, the world will often respond to you the way it did to Christ. That's what happened with Stephen. Luke tells us that, that he spoke in such a way that those in the synagogue could not resist his wisdom. So they did the only thing that they knew how to do. They dragged him away and brought him up on trumped up charges. 
Luke says in verse 11 and following, he says, They secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. In other words, it wasn't real, it wasn't true, but they enticed some to make false claims against him. In fact, verse 13, they also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of, that Moses delivered to us. What happens to Stephen here, if you remember, sounds remarkably similar to what happened to Jesus when Jesus was brought up on charges in Matthew chapter 26. And what that tells us is that to be identified with Jesus often means that we will be persecuted like Jesus. If they hated Jesus, they will hate those who follow him and belong to him. Those are the words of Christ. In John chapter 15. However, let me point out that based upon the charges brought against Stephen, we know that they were false, blasphemous charges. They were, they were secretly induced. They were false charges. Nevertheless, what we do recognize based upon what they said is that Stephen had evidently not only been emulating Jesus' character, but he had also been preaching and teaching along the same lines that Jesus preached and taught. He simply told people the same things that, that Christ had told them when he was on earth. That, that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the law and the temple. Now it was those two things, those two rails that, that lay upon the entire charge that was brought against Stephen. Remember that Jesus had said back in John chapter 2 verse 19, in reference to his own body, you remember what he said? He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, the people didn't understand that Jesus was referring to himself. They thought he was talking about the physical temple. In fact, they continued to bring that charge against Jesus all the way into when he was, he was brought before charges before he was crucified. Later, Jesus also dared to speak of himself as God's new temple that had replaced the old one. In reference to himself, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, he says, I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Now those were fighting words. Those were fighting words for the Jews of that day. Jesus also, though, declared that, that he had come to fulfill the law. He was repeatedly, as you recall, accused of disrespecting the law, particularly on the Sabbath. Whenever he would do something on the Sabbath, he was always accused of, of disrespecting the law and the Sabbath laws. But the problem was that the scribes and Pharisees didn't understand him. Rather than disrespecting the law, Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So based upon what Luke tells us here regarding the charges that are brought against Stephen, he not only displayed the same character of Jesus, but he also preached the same message about Jesus that Jesus preached about himself. Stephen preached, as John Stott has written, that he preached Christ positively and constructively as the one in whom all that the Old Testament foretold and foreshadowed is fulfilled, including the temple and the law. The best way that I can begin to explain the emphasis of the, the message that, that Stephen preached would be to describe what it was kind of like for me when I was in the service, when I was in the Navy and I was stationed overseas. It was a period of about three years that I was overseas. 
And there was, there was hardly a week that went by that I didn't go to my post office box and pull out an envelope. And in that envelope were two letters, one written by my mother, handwritten by my mother, one typed out on a typewriter by my dad because he knew I couldn't read his writing. <laughs> and so I would have both of those letters. And in those letters, they would tell me everything that was going on in their life. It was like a stream of conscious thought. Three years. Rarely a week went by that I didn't get a letter from my mom and my dad. All the way until I got out of and was discharged from the Navy and I came back home to Gainesville, Georgia, and there I am sitting in their living room. You know what stopped? The letters. Why do you need to write a letter to someone who is sitting in your very living room with you? Just as the rising sun does away with the need of street lamps and flashlights, so does the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ destroy the need for the temple and, and for the law. Jesus fulfilled them both. In him was the fulfillment of everything that had been foreshadowed and had been pointed to. That's what Stephen preached that's what he taught. And as a result, he faced an angry mob who made some serious charges against him. But Luke tells us that his face was like that of an angel. You know, many scholars take that to mean that his face just radiated with this glow. Just like that of, of Moses. When, when Moses came down from the mountain with, with the books of the law, his face was, was radiating because he had come in contact with God himself. The irony here is that Stephen is accused of demeaning and disrespecting Moses when in fact he's really reflecting the same likeness of Moses. So that introduces us to Stephen the man. The message that comes next. That's the next hook on your outline. It's the message. The message. Stephen's sermon there in, in chapter 7 is the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. And as you probably noticed as I read it for you earlier, it traces a tremendous amount of Israel's ancient history. It begins by, by talking about Abraham, then it moves to Joseph, then it moves to Moses, then it moves to Kings David and Solomon at the end. And I don't think that we ought to infer from, from the sermon itself that, that, that Stephen preached here, that this message that he, he delivered, that he and somehow believed that the Sanhedrin council was, was ignorant of their past record. No, I, I don't think he believed them to be ignorant of their history at all. Rather, as we'll see, I think Stephen was merely pointing out something that's very important for all of us to remember, and that is while it is possible to be familiar with the historical facts, it is equally possible to miss the necessary implication of those facts. That was the problem with the Sanhedrin. They knew their history. They just had forgotten or missed completely the emphasis that their history was pointing to. Time prevents us from examining every verse and every detail of the sermon, and to all of that, you guys can say amen, praise the Lord. Um, there are some great commentaries out there that I would encourage you to read because they go into great detail of it all and it's, it's very important and, and, and profitable for you. What I want to do is to summarize this sermon for you and hopefully help you see the continuity of this sermon as a whole and how it fits 
with the defense of Stephen against this charge of blasphemy and against the temple and the law and, and all of this of which Stephen was accused. He, he begins by focusing, I believe, on the charge of blasphemy against the temple. Now, now keep in mind, for the Jew, we really cannot overstate the incredible importance that the temple played in the life of, of their lives, in the life of the religion, in the life of the Jew as a whole. They equated the temple to God's presence, and they associated it with God's unconditional protection. But by retracing Israel's history, Stephen actually shows his accusers that they had misunderstood God and they'd misunderstood the importance of the temple. He begins by pointing to Abraham. And the key phrase to pick up on there is, is in verse 2. He says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And as Tony Merida has put it, Stephen tells the council, God made a covenant with Abraham when he was still a pagan and by amazing grace made the man the father of many nations before the law, before the temple, or before the nation of Israel even existed. That's important to remember. And then from there, Stephen goes on to talk about Joseph. He begins by reminding his accusers that Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers and that he was taken to Egypt. In, in fact, in the span of eight verses in which Joseph is discussed, the land of Egypt is mentioned six times. Nevertheless, Stephen makes it clear there in verse 9 that despite all that happened to Joseph in Egypt, God was with him. Joseph experienced God's favor and his protection even though, listen, there was no temple in Egypt. And then Stephen moves on to discuss Moses. In fact, notice once again the irony that Stephen has been accused of disrespecting Moses, but the lion's share of his defense in his sermon there in chapter 7 is devoted to the man Moses and, and how he honors him. He, he, he tells about three distinct sections of Moses' life, three distinct 40-year sections and, and he described how when, when Moses was an infant, that, that God protected Moses. In a time when, when all of the Israelite babies were being put to death according to Pharaoh's command, Stephen declares that the infant Moses in verse 20 was well-pleasing or beautiful in God's sight. And then later in verse 22, he declares that as Moses grew, he became wise and he became wise, mighty in words and deeds. And then in the second section, Stephen recounts how Moses came to understand his role as savior and deliverer of his own people. Yet, as verse 25 makes clear, his own kinsmen didn't understand that. In fact, Moses was confronted and he was challenged and it resulted in him, being, him fleeing to the land of Midian. It's worth noting the parallels and the similarities between what Stephen says about Moses and what we know about Jesus. Just... For, for a second, consider this. Just like Moses, Jesus was also well-pleasing to God. Just like Moses, Jesus also was wise and mighty in his words and deeds. And just like Moses, Jesus was the Savior that God appointed to be the deliverer of his people. Even so, just as Moses was rejected by his own brother, so too Jesus was rejected. Once again, we realize that reflecting the character 
of Jesus often ends in the same experience. Rejection. Stephen continues to the third section of Moses' life by telling us that it was during his time in Midian that an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush while, Stephen says, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And according to verses 32 and 33, we read that the Lord God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, take the sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Don't miss that because that is a key central theme to the defense that Stephen is making. He is saying that there was land outside the holy land, land outside the temple that was holy. Why? Because that's where God was. Wherever God is, that place is holy. So in this section, Stephen also points out that while in the wilderness, the children of Israel were given the living oracles of God. Nevertheless, they rejected them. They refused to to obey them. They, They turned their hearts to idolatry. As Marita points out in in rehashing these facts, Stephen is clearly making the point that Israel had a history of not only rejecting God's appointed saviors, but also replacing God's glory with worthless idols. And then from there, Stephen moves on to discuss the tabernacle that was first constructed while Israel was in the wilderness and which was later moved to the promised land. And then later, King David desired to build God a permanent place, a a, a temple, but Solomon was the one ultimately given permission to do so. And and what we come to understand is that while the tabernacle and the, the temple were constructed according to God's will, and both of them were wonderful gifts given to his people by God, Stephen's point is that it was wrong for the people to believe that God was in some way confined to either of them. That's what we read in verses 48 through 50. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So Stott summarizes this lengthy section well. He says a single thread runs through the first part of Stephen's defense. It is that the God of Israel is a pilgrim God who is not restricted to any one place. He has pledged himself by solemn covenant to be their God. And therefore, according to his covenant promises, wherever they are, there he is also. Stephen's point was that the people had placed so much emphasis upon the physical temple that they missed what it was pointing to, that God would come and dwell among his people and that he had done so through the person of Jesus Christ, whom they had put to death. But that was not all that they had misunderstood just as Stephen cited in verses 38 through 43, how the ancient Israelites had rejected the oracles of God in, in the wilderness and, and turned themselves to the worship of worthless idols, he now turns his attention 
to those before whom he stood trial. And listen to the boldness with which Stephen confronts them in verse 51 again. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Abraham was given the covenant sign of his covenant through circumcision that he performed on his son Isaac on the eighth day. And that's what represented the fact that he, was, he belonged to God. It was God's understanding of the covenant. Stephen turns that around and says, you're uncircumcised in your heart and in your ears. You don't give yourself completely to God. You, you, you resist everything about who he is. And he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. It's interesting. Stephen had been accused of subverting the law, but here he points out that the fact that it was the religious leaders themselves, it was those authorities before whom he stood who were actually the lawbreakers. They were, they were the ones who had rejected the just one, their appointed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself was the one who had come to fulfill the law. Now, presumably right here, we would have expected, based upon what we see about the, the message of the temple, we would expect Stephen to go on and start talking about how Jesus had completely fulfilled the law. But, but his sermon was interrupted. He didn't get to finish. As long as it was, it could have been longer. But notice what happened. Luke tells us in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And that leads us to the last hook on the outline. You've probably already guessed what it is. We've looked at Stephen the man. We've examined Stephen's message. And now we read about Stephen the martyr. Stephen the martyr. Stephen's message, listen, it should have caused those who heard it to repent. But instead, it only enraged them. And they come at him like a pack of wolves. But Luke tells us in verses 55 and 56 that Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Since the Scriptures repeatedly refer to Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father, following his completed work of the atonement and his ascension back to heaven. Well, many have wondered what Stephen's vision of Jesus standing here at the right hand of the Father could mean. And I would encourage you to go back and do a little research on your own and read some other things because a lot of it is going to be uh, folks' interpretation of it. The general consensus is that the Lord Jesus stood as Stephen's heavenly advocate, attesting to the Father that Stephen was one of his own. You see, there's actually two trials going on here. There's the earthly trial in which Stephen is being condemned. There's the heavenly trial in which he goes and he stands and he has the advocate of Jesus who points to him and says, this one belongs to me. He has placed his faith in me. 
He's covered with my blood. My righteousness rests upon him. Father, don't hold his sin against him because he belongs to me. As that, as that phrase has been making its way across Christendom here, here recently, the, the, the thief on the cross only had one thing that he could claim when he got to the heavenly throne. And it was like the man on the center cross said, I could come. That's the only way any of us ever get there is that the man on the center cross told us that we could get there. And here we see a picture of Jesus standing and telling the father, look, this one belongs to me. F.F. Bruce has put it this way. Stephen has been confessing Christ before men and now he sees Christ confessing him before God. I think it's also equally appealing, though, to think that Jesus stood at his father's right hand in order to welcome home the very first Christian martyr. Listen, a martyr is someone who dies because of their beliefs. A Christian martyr is someone who is killed because of his or her witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word martyr really comes from the Greek word that means to be a witness. It means to be one who bears a testimony. Stephen was just such a man, and he died for the witness that he bore of Jesus Christ. And I mentioned earlier how Luke portrays that Stephen was having the character of Jesus. He emulated Christ in the way that he lived, in his character. And, and he also was maligned, and he was put on trial under false charges, just like Jesus had been. And then we see that Jesus, excuse me, that Stephen was murdered just like Jesus without the benefit of a just trial. Stephen, Luke tells us that they drugged Stephen outside the city wall and they began to pummel him with stones. But before he died, notice, Stephen offered a couple prayers to Jesus. And, and in verse 59, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And I want you to notice just how close and similar that is to the prayer that Jesus prayed when he was on the cross in Luke 23, verse 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Luke tells us in verse 60 that Stephen knelt and he prayed, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. This too is similar to the prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross. In Luke 23, verse 34, regarding those who crucified him, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In life and in death, Stephen honored his Lord by both living and dying like him. Marita says it this way, this beautiful truth helps us see how one filled with the Spirit lives and dies. Stephen asks Jesus to welcome him home, and then Stephen prays for his murderers. Only people who know the forgiveness of Jesus at a deep level can offer such grace. There are two final, but I think very significant footnotes that I want to point out because I think both of them are going to play a major role in the book of Acts as it moves forward. The first one is that when Stephen was stoned to death, the witnesses who began hurling their stones took off their outer garments. And listen, they took off their outer garments because they didn't want to be encumbered. They didn't want to be weighted down. They wanted to have freedom and flexibility to move when they threw their stones at Stephen. And so they took off their outer clothes and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Luke tells us in chapter 8, verse 1, that this Saul consented to Stephen's death. 
In another touch of irony, it would be this same Saul who himself would become the answer to Stephen's prayer because Saul would later find forgiveness through Jesus and become the undeserving recipient of this first Christian martyr's request that his sin not be held against him. Furthermore, it is said that as a result of what occurred, a great persecution of the church began to happen. And that persecution, it scattered the church throughout the regions of both Judea and Samaria. And it was Saul who was leading the charge. And what we begin to see is how God intended to fulfill his command. Back in chapter, back in chapter 1, verse 8. You remember I told you you needed to memorize that verse because it was going to continue to come up. And in chapter 1, verse 8, we realize that God had commanded his disciples to be his witnesses to all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what we see here is that the way that these witnesses would carry that good news of the gospel message was through the words and the testimony of those who were persecuted for their faith. That is how Luke closes the first part of this book and how he introduces us to the next section, but we'll have to wait to the next time to delve into it. For today, and this is as much as we can really get our hands around in one moment, for today, I just simply want to offer you this, this thought, this sermon in a sentence, and I'm not real sure that it's a good sentence, but it doesn't have a period to the end, so take it for what it's worth. When we trust in Jesus and pattern our lives after him, and testify of him while we can expect to be treated as he was treated and suffer as he suffered. We nevertheless can be confident that when we close our eyes in death, we will open them to see our glorified Savior welcoming us home. It's okay. That's the hope that we have in Christ. It's something to be celebrated. The question that I've got for you is this. Do you have that hope? Is it yours? Do you possess it? Have you placed your faith in Christ? Is he the Lord of your life? I want you to know that the only way you can ever have the confidence that that sermon in the Senate states is when you've humbled yourself before him. Nothing in your hands you're bringing to him. Nothing that you're trying to throw out and have him to notice you for. You simply say, I need you and nothing else. It's not the good things that I've done. It's not the kind words that I've spoken to someone. It's simply because of what Christ has done. Have you done that? Have you come to him humbly? Listen, that's the only hope that you have. Christ will one day stand in your defense and tell the Father and God himself, this one's mine. It's when you come to him in faith, just like that. If you've done that, and if that is your testimony, then I would suggest that you also, based upon this text, ask yourself this question. Am I faithfully patterning the way that I live my life after his example? When others look at me, can they tell that I'm a Christian? Can they see something in me that, that reminds them of Jesus?
that points them to the cross. My dad used to say it this way, and I'm sure he borrowed it from someone. You've probably heard it before. If you were being put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's actually quite apropos for us today in our society. You see, what becomes more and more evident every day in the world in which we live is that if our character and our values are consistently aligned with those of Jesus and what is taught in the Scriptures, we will find ourselves to be more and more at odds with the culture that is around us. And standing up for Christ and living for Him will inevitably draw us into conflict with those around us. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, our hope is not in this world. Our hope lies in the fact that we have a Savior who has died for us and is risen from the dead and has gone to prepare a place for us and who will be there to welcome us home. And in that moment, in that moment when we close our eyes in death, whether it comes by natural reasons or whether it comes as a result of our persecution, When we close our eyes in death here, we have the confidence that we will then open them and see him face to face. And then we will know that living for Jesus was worth more than any sacrifice we were ever called to pay. That, that was Stephen's story. Is it yours? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the message of Stephen and for the life that he lived, but I'm infinitely more thankful for the life that you lived, for the death that you died, for the sacrifice that you made for a dirty, rotten sinner like me. Father, there is nothing in my hands that I can bring to you. As the song says, only to your cross can I cling. Lord, in this room today, there are many who come from many different directions and many different walks of life. But what unites us is that all of us are sinners. What unites us is that we all have a need that we cannot meet on our own. Just like Stephen, we have to come to that hope of understanding that you're our only only source of, of hope and our only hope of salvation. So my prayer today is that if there's one in this room that has never trusted in you to be their Savior and Lord, they've never confessed their sin before you and reached out to grab on to the hem of your garment that today would be that day. Lord, there are many of us in this room that that is our testimony, but the fact of the matter is is that if we're honest, we do not live in such a way that we would be convicted if we were put on trial for being a Christian. Our lips are closed to the message of the gospel. Our lives don't reflect the values. Father, my prayer is that you would bring conviction there today as well. Help us to recognize that our lives are to be those in which we emulate the character of Christ and we we preach the same message that Christ preached. 
And then in the moments in which we come against the persecution and the resistance, help us, Father, to be understanding of the fact that that's only normal, but that our hope is not here, that it's in heaven with you. Thank you for what you promise us in your word, and thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And now I pray that we would commit our lives to following you. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.